0: Hello once again, and welcome to Filmography Club. I'm Jason. Today's episode is the final episode of season two, and it's a doozy because we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road, and we're talking about it with Will Fox. Now, Will and I go way, way back. He was my guest on the first two ever episodes of Filmography Club. He also edited those episodes where we talked about our shared love of the work of Paul Thomas Anderson in general, and Heart 8 and Boogie Nights in particular. I reached out to him to ask him if he wanted to talk to me about one of his favorite movies, and he sent me a GIF of the Doof Warrior playing his guitar slash flamethrower on top of that rig. It's always a blast talking movies with Will, and his enthusiasm for this movie is obvious. So now I present to you my conversation with Will Fox about Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm joined by Will Fox. Will, welcome back. Hey, thanks uh, very much. Glad to be back, man. Yeah, man, it's it's, it's, uh, it's been a long time. You were the guest on the first two
1: episodes. And I have been so thrilled to watch and listen uh, as you've continued on this journey and done such a fantastic job. And uh, yeah, really... Glad to uh, be back and be a part of the continued legacy of Filmography Club.
0: <laughs> sure, I'll take it, man. Thanks. So uh, I contacted you about doing one of your favorite movies and you responded with Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm glad you did. Man, what Hell an awesome yeah. movie. How am I going to do an entire episode of this podcast without just saying, and that other scene was fucking awesome. And the movie was fucking awesome. And that, that performance, that stunt. Did you see that stunt? It was fucking awesome. So I'll I'll do my best to not talk about how awesome this movie is.
1: No, actually, that's exactly why I chose it, because I wanted you to go into all of those fucking awesome, fucking awesome, (laughs) fucking awesome one after the other, because that's what this movie gives you. And one of the things about it that made me want to pick it with our conversation is because each time you and I have ever discussed it, it's like our minds have just consistently been blown, and it's been so exciting to uh, just marvel at what is, you know, on its surface, such a simplistic sort of thing uh, with all of, you know, the bombast of the best action movie ever made, but yet still have uh, so much going on in it. There's so much to talk about with this movie. And it's amazing that George Miller, did he come out of retirement for this movie? No, it wasn't so much a coming out of retirement uh, as it was just a, a persistence in finally getting the damn thing made. Um, I mean, we can go into the making of component of it, but, uh, but just, I don't know, I'd like to hear more about like, what is it about for you that this movie just completely, you know, uh, excites you and, uh, br- keeps bringing you back to it. Well, it's about
0: a little over two hours long and the very beginning gives you just enough setup. And then it's just off to the races. It does not let up for two hours. It ju- it's just go, go, go pure adrenaline. And not once does any of it feel tedious, not once am I confused about who is who, why is this person chasing that person. All the characters in the story have their own little little nuances, little quirks. They're fleshed out characters that could be henchman number three in a lesser script, or I shouldn't even say script, because as you pointed out, this movie had no script. It was all storyboarded, which we'll get into that too. Such a fleshed out universe, fleshed out setting, very little CG involved in this movie. Everything feels grounded. There's real world physics at work here. It's just pure. Ah, this is going to sound pretentious. I don't care. This it's pure cinema. It's its pure action cinema.
1: No, it absolutely is. It's, it's like, it's a adrenaline shot of cinema, you know, straight to the vein. I mean, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of the uh, you know, I think you have to have the requisite, you know, Tarantino reference in all and all of your shows, right? Yeah. So for Pulp yeah, the, the, yeah. the Pulp Fiction thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, it, for me, there's very few movies that, you know, subjectively I look at and consider to be almost a perfect movie, you know, uh, one of the only one, you know, one of the other ones uh, for me is is the Matrix. Frankly, I mean the Matrix in terms of its construction, there doesn't, there's nothing superfluous to it. Every shot, every you know, uh, every piece of it seems like it is intended and needs to be there. And that's definitely the case with this movie for me, where uh, you know, um, it's a perfect fucking movie. Bottom line, uh, in the sense of it's construction and the, again, just the simplicity of it, but the, the, the deceptive simplicity of it. Uh, it is, you know, just this distillation of a mythic hero story with all of these uh, huge action elements just completely turned up to 11. Uh, it is, you know, the uh, Anthropocene uh, uh, action movie. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's Cirque du Soleil action. It's everything that you can imagine completely taken to the extreme, but yet with a, uh, a core sort of heart and hope and fundamental sort of human story to it that makes it so universal and so easy to connect with from the way that he approached, you know, effectively as a silent movie uh, that it could translate in all cultures. You know, he's, I think uh, George Miller said that, you know, he, he wanted to, uh, take a cue from uh, from Hitchcock that, you know, they wouldn't have to read the subtitles in Japan. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he pulled it off, something, in, he pulled off an incredible feat uh, that took, you know, again, like 20 years in the making. He had the idea for this thing in like 1995, where the simple idea of, okay, a chase movie, I'm going to make a chase movie where the cargo is women, you know, who are being pursued and then you know was beset by one issue after another in terms of actually getting it made which uh, I think the fact that beset by one thing after another to getting it made but uh, to go back to its inception, you know I, your, your point around they're not really being a script it's is it's actually aided by the fact that there wasn't a script because there is so much information packed into the every frame of this movie and they're in, you know, the world building and detail is so rich that uh, you couldn't really capture that. The script would have been 500 pages long. And so for them to actually have started from the storyboard perspective, both as a, you know, extension of his intention to make a, you know, a a silent film uh, where it's told completely visually but then to uh, actually orchestrate the level of complexity that they, that they had in terms of the visual execution of this thing, I mean, I don't know how you wouldn't have needed to actually storyboard each of these pieces. Because again, it's so intricately constructed in its editing and its pacing and what it's capturing that he was actually aided by the 20 years it took to actually bring it to the screen, because, you know, I think in the late 90s, all of that, all of the storyboarding that he and Brendan McCarthy, I think is uh, the guy's name, who was uh, sort of the storyboard artist and visualizer and co-script writer and, uh, you know, uh, effectively, the, I think, according to him, the you know, the steward of the Mad Max sort of legacy, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, and, a comic and, book artist as well, yeah. Yeah, the level of, of detail and consideration that went into the visualization of the movie via those storyboards, I think, aided it so much. It's like I, having that reference, you know, in terms of the chaos of its making, you know, out in the middle of the desert, I can imagine was a huge help to the entire crew. Are you aware of like I guess all of the you know start, starts and stops and all of the crazy sort of background in terms of getting it made that they went through?
0: I saw that I think pre-production started in 97 and yeah. there was some start and stop again in 2003 and there was a lot of yeah but but, but I don't really know any of the details of it.
1: Well, you know, for the audience, it's like, uh, all right, they start in ninety, in the late '90s, and they start storyboarding it, and they start going into pre-production. They've got, you know, a deal with Fox because at the time, Mel Gibson was actually going to be Max in it, and uh, he was set. He he was set up at Fox, so they started uh, sort of prepping it there, and were originally going to shoot it in Australia, where the other Mad Maxes were shot. I think in a place called Button Hill. And then we're prepping it and we're going to shoot in uh, the early 2000s. But then nine eleven happened and the dollar dropped relative to the Australian dollar in such a way that like a third of their budget just sort of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And the guy, uh, the production designer had already been going through. Uh, the building of and designing and of, of a lot of these cars and rigs and everything. And they basically just had to, uh, you know, pack it all up and shut down for uh, a few years. And then they tried to get it going again in 2003. But then with the Iraq war and all this other stuff that went away, then, well, actually, I think they got it back up and going like in, two, in the mid 2000s. Again in Button Hill, but then like this huge uh, torrential, like typhoon rainstorm, you know, rain season came through, and what was intended, of course, to be this desert wasteland landscape suddenly, you know, it was a complete, uh, you know, uh, turned into a river. And then when all of that dried up, uh, all it just uh, all of this greenery showed up, and it like basically turned into, uh, you know, Ireland, according to them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we can't shoot here now, you know, like, there's, there's, there's all this vegetation everywhere. And so again, they had to close up shop and they shipped everything back to this place uh, in Africa, N- Namibia, where ultimately they end up, they ended up shooting the film, but uh, it wasn't until like 2012 that they actually started production. Uh, so, I mean, you've got, you know, effectively this almost 20 years, it was literally 20 years from 95 when he had the idea to 2015 when the movie came out and all of these you know setbacks throughout the entire process it's just it's remarkable to to consider that you know you go through all of those travails and yet still and then of course you know just the, the chaos of whatever the the shoot was which um you know they i can just go on and on about this jason but yeah i mean then the, the chaos of them being in the desert for uh, i think like the seven month long eight month long shoot And Charlize Theron and uh, uh, Tom Hardy, they didn't know what the hell was going on. They were, you know, just basically lost and at odds with one another. Apparently it was a really, really torturous shoot for both of them. They didn't understand what George Miller was doing. Tom Hardy in particular was completely lost and uh, apparently was very difficult to work with through that time. Mm. Um, The the way that the movie was, was, was shot, you know, was, you know, just pieces and parts. And, you know, for these actors who were used to, you know, doing full scenes and sort of having a lot of dialogue of which there's hardly any in this movie. Um, They just could never really get their bearings. And you can imagine that with George Miller, with all of the uh, elements that are at work and at play, you know, all of these huge stunts, you know, he's, he said that one of the biggest thing that the primary focus that he had day after day after day was the anxiety of all of the stunts that somebody was going to get hurt. And so his focus, not only just kind of keeping everything corralled and wrangled uh, amidst what I'm sure was just total chaos and desert with so many moving parts, you have these little coddled, uh, you know, uh, movie stars that are effectively, you know, puppets in this, in this play, and important pl- puppets, and they do a fine job in the movie. I mean, ultimately, it gets, all gets pulled off. But I mean, I, I can empathize with them being felt like cast to the, uh, to the, to the sandstorm. Uh, that was the making of this movie out there yeah during award season i i couldn't imagine any actors
0: being put up you know being nominated for anything this is a technical achievement this this movie
1: no and 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 how validating ultimately to see all of the technicians you know uh uh so many of the filmmakers or the back you know the, the so many of the people who worked on this movie win oscars like uh you know when the, the night of, of the academy awards when like they won six Technical uh, Academy Awards in a row. It was just like, yes, yes, yes. I mean... They absolutely should have. Just a technical marvel. For sure. And, and and here's the thing. It's like, not only is this one of the... I mean, it's bar none, if not the best, one of the top three best action films of all time. And even it, with it being an action film, which kind of you can expect to come with all of its tropes and all that sort of stuff, it does not adhere to any of those outside of what are just really fundamental good storytelling structure and sort of mythic orientation, right? I mean, uh, George Miller himself, you know, I mean, you, you talk about him having not really done a whole lot before this or like seemingly, but really he was doing stuff the whole time. He was making children's movies.
0: Yeah, he did Happy Feet, I think, and Babe. And it's, it's just amazing to think that the guy that made a, a movie about a pig, Lost in the City, made what I would consider to be maybe the finest action movie ever made. Totally, but that's An elderly exactly, man at that.
1: I, that. I wanted to get to that as well. I mean, uh, the, yeah, the children's movies. I mean, he produced Babe and then he directed Babe too, and then he went and did two Happy Feets. And then suddenly he resurrects this, you know, 30-year-old uh, uh, franchise and character uh, that he'd been sort of, again, uh, you know uh, diligently trying to bring to fruition. But he translated, I think, all of those fundamental narrative constructs that work so well in children's films and like these very sort of simplistic uh, ideas and themes and translated into this adult, huge, R-rated action film. And it's exactly the simplicity of that storytelling and just the hearing to... Uh, strict, clear, mythic fundamentals that make it w- make it come off so well. Uh, it's like, um, apart from the the thrill and the excitement of all of the action inside of it, is actually a really clear message too. That is timely in terms of you know the Mad Max franchise emerging, uh, you know, at the end of the of the twentieth century and uh, emerging out of the seventies in terms of you know the gas shortage and mechanized man, and we can kind of get into all the sort of subtextual stuff of it. But that message, he wraps up the medicine in a really sweet confection, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, that goes down really, really easily. Let's not forget that not only having pulled off that achievement, all of the sort of going to war and coming out the other end of it and winning these awards and getting the, uh, the adulation of, you know, not only just critics, who, who can imagine, you know, such a well-reviewed, uh, you know, action movie, Coming out of all of that chaos uh, and getting the adulation and all the validation, not only critically, but the audience loving it, that uh, it was a bunch of 70-year-olds who made the damn thing. (laughs)
0: Let's not forget that. Most crews are about half the age of the guys that were in charge of the different departments on this movie, and they... They put on a clinic in how to make a movie to people half their age.
1: It is a masterclass, and you know maybe you know it's only you know uh, wise and weathered filmmakers like them who could pull something like this off. You know him pulling the cinematographer John Seale out of retirement to come and make this movie. You know who himself was was I guess nearly seventy. Uh, George Miller is was in the late sixties and seventy at the time the movie came out. His wife, uh, who edited the film, you know, which in and of itself I think is a is a brilliant choice on his part, choosing her uh, because of uh, because she is a woman and because she was going to approach this film and uh, you know from a completely different uh, perspective than what one would expect in terms of all these action films. Yeah, so many good choices made from a from a crew perspective, but yeah, it's mind boggling that a group of 60 and 70-year-olds can go and show all the young whippersnappers how to do it. Those
0: guys, they, they made what a lot of people consider to be an action masterpiece back in, what, 81? The Road Warrior? Was it Road 81? Something like that. And yeah. people, I remember watching that movie all the time. It was on HBO constantly back in the day when I was a kid. And I fucking loved it. And I didn't think that there would ever be a car chase or a chase sequence to rival that third act. And then here comes that same group of men three plus decades later. They're like, not only are we going to take what worked in that movie and just crank what worked all the way up, give you more of that. It's going to be the whole movie. You thought it was ridiculous that we had a whole third act that was a chase scene? No, we're going to make a two hour movie. The first half, the first hour is a chase. The second half is a race for years. I I didn't think anybody would top. um, Well, you know what? I'm about to compare apples and oranges. I was going to compare, like, say, the raid to this, but these are two totally different styles of action. Two totally sure. different,
1: yeah. Well, we, yeah, the, the, that Road Warrior piece, you know, it's like it was kind of held up as, you know, the penultimate, one of the best action movies. And so for them to, uh, you know, effectively outdo themselves in the process of outdoing everybody else. Uh, yeah, left themselves in the, themselves the Roy- dust, I'd say, too. To go yeah, back and watch The Road
0: Warrior now, it's kind of quaint after having watched. Fury Road, and I, I used to swear by the Road Warrior. Look, not to take away from the Road Warrior, it's it's a marvel too. Uh, you know, look at it and its zeitgeist, its time and place, its head and shoulders above most other action movies. But this just blows them out of the water, and it's they didn't cheat. It's not a CG fest. This could have easily have been a cartoon. This could have all been done in a computer somewhere, but they took the time, they took the decades apparently to, to get it right. Uh,
1: to give credit to the Road Warrior though I mean that world building that he did and the sort of extension and really sort of re- you know re- reinventing the post-apocalyptic kind of story and inserting all of the imagination of you know all of the cars and the characters and giving it one of the things I love about uh, about him as a stylist and, and as a storyteller really is a sort of mythic storyteller is him telling all of his crew and even back with the road warrior acknowledging that okay even in the sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland people are still going to be attuned to beauty and they're still going to be attuned to detail and so the 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 labor of you know detail that he gave or uh, you know inspired all of his, his crew and collaborators to give to that world right is really remarkable and you know without the road warrior there is no uh, fury road because so much of what they were what was great about the mad max franchise that he established there is partly what they wanted to double down on you know in this movie and so for it to just become the chase you know to to be the the western on wheels as they call it right is is just badass that's the thing it's like just badass. i remember it all comes uh, back to that doesn't it yeah i mean it, it's fucking it's like awesome You can talk about all of the, you know, the cool stuff, the detail. And that's the thing. It's like, there's so much to look at. It's, it it is absolutely this candy store. Uh, But yeah, with, with the medicine in it too, which uh, I do want to get to, but I just have such a fond memory of seeing it in the theater too, because I remember being at work and um, you know, it was just one of those days where, you know what, there's not a whole lot going on uh, and look around at the team. And it's like, you know what, that new Mad Max movie's out at the theater. Let's just beg off and go to the movies. And we all did. And so we all collectively went to, uh, to see Mad Max. You know, it was just such a, what was a kind of a drab day turned into this uh, amazing explosion of, uh, of cinematic exquisiteness that, uh, that, that I was glad to both share with, with friends and colleagues. And then, yeah, just to kind of continually be baffled and marvel at what the hell I just experienced
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember that as a matter of fact I remember you telling me go see this movie now while it's in theater you will you will regret not having seen it on a big screen and for whatever reason I didn't I just I don't know it was five years ago I don't really remember but at the moment I saw it on a smaller screen I just I really regretted not having taken your advice
1: well there's definitely something to and I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't been uh sort of a theatrical revival for it there ought to be it's like <laughs> i know that there's sort of like a time period that one expects you know but uh, as far as i'm concerned every every five years they should uh, re-release this in the theater you know COVID year uh, aside but uh but yeah i mean the the it's the the loudest experience uh with some of the best sound and music you know i mean it, it is you know to your point around it being you know potentially cartoony it's like ultimately it's a translation of a heavy metal magazine comic, you know, coupled with, you know, uh, uh, Slayer. And, uh, you know, you just spit it out the other end through this like kaleidoscope of color, which is another really great stylistic choice that he made right from the outset was, you know, we're not gonna make this, you know, kind of, you know, muted, desaturated, post-apocalyptic world. You know, I wanna turn up all of the color. And it's so brilliant in terms of its oranges and its blues and so the image is so rich and dynamic you know and bring such detail to what is so many things going on in each of the frames that stylistically i think was just a a mark of genius on his part and the other sort of technical choice that he made that i think really helps translate the movie is the center framing of everything and it being a very deliberate choice on his part knowing that it was going to be so kinetic in terms of everything that's going on in the frame and the sort of uh, the cutting style of it, that by keeping everything, uh, you know, basically centered, you know, that you as the audience would actually be able to keep up and always remain oriented to what, what you should be oriented to. That helps subtly pull the movie off in a way that um, had he not done that, you could have easily ended up in this jumble of stuff happening and not understanding where you are, where the characters are. Uh, so in terms of the orchestration, the visual orchestration, of not only just what's going on and all the, uh, the, the the shots, you never lose your place
0: in it. It's easy to marvel at what this movie is because there's just so much to marvel at and to just be impressed by, but what it could have been easily like I said earlier, it could have been a big CGI cartoon. It also could have been just a big fucking mess. It could have been, you don't know who's who, you don't know what's what. Everything from just the big caravan chase sequences, all of the vehicles have their own distinct look and personality. At no point are you confused by who's who, by who's chasing who, why they're they're chasing them. Could have been a big shaky cam mess. Things could have gone wrong in so many different ways and George Miller seems to have just hired the exact right people or was just clear enough in communicating what he was looking for to his crew, if not his cast, that uh, again, it's just fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just kind of comes back to that, and and that as it should be. You know, about the color uh, palettes, though. You're right. This movie has its own distinct color palette. I think the only two that kinda even look alike are the second and third of uh, Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. Both kind of drab looking movies. Certainly Road Warrior. It, it almost has like a documentary look to it. Everything seems kind of drab and dull. Whereas the first movie, I think that's the only Mad Max movie that has any green in it. Uh, sure. Yeah, and yeah. I I remember very little about the third one. And by the way, if you're concerned about not having seen any of the other Mad Max movies, don't bother. There's no continuity whatsoever. They just throw you into the movie, and and you can pick it up as you go along. There's there's very little continuity. None of it's really important. I don't think George Miller cares about that.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with you on the one hand, and then I disagree with you on the other. Only okay. in the sense that you're you're 100 right that that each of these movies can be viewed as a standalone. And you know, while there is definitely threads that uh, in terms of the character and who he represents and the world building that occurs that is 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 interesting to carry over as you watch each of these things because again i do see fury road being sort of this uh the apex of whatever sort of ideas and world that he was trying to build and the level of sort of action execution that that was being built through the others to have a sense of appreciation um uh, of that definitely definitely helps but Fury Road as a, as a standalone absolutely works without anything before it. Fury Road definitely works as a standalone, but it, it, in the sense that, you know, he's drawing from these Western traditions. You know, I've been watching, uh, or at least I've tried to watch uh, The Mandalorian. I'm not sure if you keep up with that. I, I um, saw the
0: first season. I canceled my Disney Plus right at the beginning of the pandemic. But...
1: Well, I, I, I've not been keeping up with with the the... the mandalorian second season because uh you know it too adheres so closely to those western sort of tropes and structure of you know the, the stranger walks into town and or needs that ha- and, and, and agrees to help the townsfolk achieve some objective right uh and that's effectively what each of the mad max movies are as well and so he's building very clearly on that western uh sort of the western structure mm-hmm. um the man with no name even Yeah, Yeah. he doesn't even give his name until well
0: into the movie. Yeah.
1: And so in the same way that, you know, the Mandalorian, everybody kind of loves it right now. And it's not doing anything really original outside of just placing these, uh, these old story tropes within the Star Wars world. You know, George Miller's doing that only within his own specially constructed world. That has, again, so much detail and so much, you know, resonance effectively in terms of this moment in time. The fact that it's a post-apocalyptic sort of uh, world in which, you know, in which man is effectively, you know, become married to gasoline and money and, uh, you know, power that, uh, you know, it brings, it brings the world to its end. Uh, and then we're all just sort of left to, to, to pick up the pieces and make it what we will and what this movie does so well and uh, and all of them is, you know, kind of it hints at what could actually really happen to us if we continue on the path that we're on. It's a statement on the environment and it's a statement on, you know, gender relations. And there's so much underlying richness to it that can, you know, again, be the medicine that's going down with the sugar. But uh, it's important not to lose sight, I think, in terms of what his his concerns are as a filmmaker and as a storyteller. One of the most powerful things about this movie and what it in- injects into the Mad Max sort of world is the role of the female. And, you know, introducing a female road warrior, number one, with Furiosa, but again, very in very stark allegorical colors, you know, saying, you know, men bad, warlord, try to control people, try to hoard uh, resource, right? Uh, and try to Uh, imprison captive women to be my uh, breeders uh, breeders um you know you know who broke the world uh it, it says and and in one of the uh early drafts of the script that i that i looked at it said uh you know fathers broke the world in the script that's what it said but you know i'm glad that they you know who broke the world well it's no question in terms of watching the movie that you know men broke the world. And it's going to be, it's women who actually, it's women who hold the power for the rebirth uh, of our world. They're on their way, you know, in the sense of hope to the green place, you know, all these very sort of simple kind of constructs, but uh, striving for a better world. And one that in which, you know, we do away with the sense of reliance on gasoline and bullets and blood. And instead, embrace the seeds of life, and uh, try to try to embrace a world of abundance, uh, or create a world of abundance. It, it's it's basically that mission that Mad Max gets uh, wrapped up in, and suddenly, you know, again, finds his uh, his personal redemption in being an assist, and uh, finding his way, and finding some meaning in all that. But yeah. Uh, Women, girls rule the world uh, as it should be. And uh, this is a picture of a movie in which they have lost uh, power. I think you just touched on
0: why this movie is so rewarding and it, for a couple of reasons, it rewards repeated viewings. There's one, just all the world building stuff, just the set design, little things that you notice that you maybe didn't notice the first time that you watched it, where you can infer the world at large and maybe the culture that's popped up around here. But also, in addition to the loud engines and the explosions and just the the nonstop onslaught of top shelf action cinema, there's also a lot of social issues that are being addressed here, like you, you mentioned. Obviously, there's gender dynamics at work here. Uh, There's commentary on where we're headed as a human race, perhaps, if we don't play our cards right. There's also themes of autonomy, not just for the women, but especially the women. They're referred to as breeders. But Max himself, Nux calls him blood bag almost the entire movie. I think the
1: entire movie, he's, he's blood bag. He's just a thing that I can utilize The thing about the blood bag, though, is that, you know, he is the blood bag for Nux in the beginning, but then ultimately in the end, you know, he's giving his blood to Furiosa and he's, you know, bringing her back to life, you know. Willingly. Yeah, willingly. And and that's when he tells her uh, his name, you know. So, I mean, it's sort of his She just calls him
0: Fool, I think. (laughs) That's her substitute name for him, you know, Fool. Yeah. (laughs) The tribe, I'm just going to call them tribes or clans. I don't really know. It's never established. There's all the different ones. There's the bullet farm. Yeah, those the guys who, who create the, the ammunition that is he's, he's an ally of a Morton Joe, the, the villain in this movie. Then there's there's another group. Who are those guys?
1: Well, there's uh, uh, Guzzling Town, right?
0: Yes, exactly. It's two things that modern society are
1: addicted to are exemplified in these smaller tribes or, or clans. Yeah, you got the the, uh, the Bullet Town folks, and you got the gasoline, and then you know Morton Joe with his his green, with him having the uh, the water and the produce. Effectively, it's like that's what they're trading. You know, they're trading in uh, you know uh, water, produce for gas or guzz and bullets. You know, bullets and gas. Like that's mm-hmm. what we're gonna get, and that's the trade. In, um, but then there's that fourth crew that they run across,
0: all of the women, the clan that's made up entirely of women that Furiosa apparently has a backstory with. Yeah, the, the, the many mothers, right? Right. It, it, yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm sure that's going to get explored in the Furiosa prequel that, that's upcoming.
1: Well, I, again, here I have to uh, give him props, though. I mean, on the one hand, sure, it's like you want to continue to capitalize on what's a hit. And yeah, the, the 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 new path of Furiosa in terms of the female road warrior and really bringing in that kind of perspective to this landscape is a new and exciting territory for him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a worthwhile one considering that, you know, the last few have all been sort of this male perspective and introducing, you know, uh, this female character and, and who, who did come from this land of many mothers in this sort of matriarchal society, you know, it's it is what they're trying to get to. And of course, when they finally get there, they realize ultimately that there's, uh, there's nothing there, that it too had been lost. You know, the green place wasn't there, you know? So it's like these stories that we tell ourselves that, you know, uh, that uh, pretty much capture the hope that we're all after and that we're manufacturing for ourselves in some sense when, you know, really, what do they do? They just return from to where they came from. Right. And it's like, you got to get back. You basically have to just make do with wh- where you are, and actually institute some sort of change there. Yeah, you um,
0: yourself have to do it.
1: You can't yeah, just but
0: keep it, running to some mythical Shangri La. That place isn't real. There's there's no
1: justice other than what you make. Exactly. And and um, have you heard of um this uh this take on uh, Mad Max or Fury Road with uh, the Wizard of Oz? Of course, people always you know try to pull these things together in a way. But uh, I thought it was, I, I found it really interesting that um, uh, one, it's a testament to the sort of simplistic, you know, fundamental storytelling that's at play in Mad Max and that it's basically just you know, the fables that we, you know, and fairy tales uh, of children's movies. Like we talked about George Miller sort of being steeped in and having been actually been producing for many years. And he just basically goes and applies it in this adult sort of framework here. That uh, that there's a lot of similarities to The Wizard of Oz apparently, and that you've got Furiosa as the um, uh, as the Tin Man and Nux as the uh, Scarecrow and uh, Max as the um, Cowardly Lion, with Furiosa and Max both represent being um, uh, an amalgamation of of Dorothy, where they're trying to get back home, right? And um, right. Uh, And they're being pursued by this evil person. Right. And that ultimately, you know, when to try to get to the Emerald Palace to get to Oz, wait a minute, you know, the curtain gets pulled back and it's actually not what you thought it was going to be. And, you know, therefore, you know, to your point, you have to actually make do with what you've got. And that's where you're going to actually find some sort of progress, right? No, I hadn't heard that. It
0: doesn't surprise me though. I mean, the, these sorts of stories are kind of, you know, there's, there's the hero's journey. There are certain archetypal stories and yeah, you know, I, I think both of them probably just kind of fall into, you know, it, if it doesn't sync up with a uh, dark side of the moon, I'm, I'm not interested.
1: <laughs> totally. You got to be yeah, pretty exactly. high for
0: that to work though.
1: Well, yeah, you got it. It's, it, it is just basic heart uh, hero's journey stuff, but, uh, but when you, when you, again, take such a, a simple kernel and then just add so much detail and level of excellent execution around it, you just have to marvel and appreciate it. And mm-hmm. So I grabbed a couple of pull quotes from uh, reviews for it that I just felt like, you know, uh, give okay. it the, the, the proper hyperbolic sort of appreciation that it deserves. Because, okay. you know, I don't think that people can really Call this movie overrated um, because it earns every bit of its badassery. Let's see. A gargantuan grunge symphony of vehicular mayhem. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Sure. Believe the hype. This movie will melt your face off. Yes. Yes. A double barreled shotgun enema straight to the senses. Wow. A double barreled shotgun enema? Straight to the senses.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Hard agree. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It, those things capture. I mean, you you can't you, you can't say enough good things about it, really. And I don't it know what's like a,
0: it feels like an art house movie in a way. If you if you kind of sit and think about it, it, it kind of works on the both levels it's got one foot in pretentious cinema because of i mean just one it's gorgeous to look at like you mentioned earlier everything is is framed towards the center and uh blues and oranges amber and teal that that color palette that i think is going to become synonymous with that decade everything seems to be amber and teal uh, to the point where i'm usually distracted by it but it totally makes sense in this movie my point being A gorgeous movie just to look at. You could just pause on any random frame, and it's going to be beautiful. And like we touched on with all the social issues, there's a lot of that stuff at work too. But again, it's it's a movie where at the end of the day, a bunch of shit blows up. A bunch of cool
1: vehicles are blowing up constantly. It's great. All in yeah, and they're doing it in a frame for real. Like you said, you know, Uh, the 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 practical execution of this and just the 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 organic. Nature of it, I think most of the CG, you know, it was was a lot of sky replacement and like wire replacement, and of course, sort of compositing stuff in. Sure, and the Um, tornado, the big sandstorm. Of course, they didn't. Of course, yeah. Which, well, there, 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 you go. Another uh, Wizard of Oz piece, right?
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, an absolutely gorgeous movie on on all those levels. All the start stop with the production of this movie. It took twenty five some odd years to actually get going in earnest from idea to the film being in cinemas. It, it I think it may have been time well spent because I don't know. It, it certainly wouldn't be the same movie if it were released in 2000 or 2005, even the technology just wasn't quite there. There's a reason why the road warrior, the chase sequence at the end looks the way it does. It's fine. It's exciting. You're right there in it, but it's not, fury road level and I believe it's because of uh forgive me I don't know the, the name of this this thing the big mechanical arm that the camera was on that you can you know what I'm talking about uh yeah during the, the chase sequences like, where they had it going up in between vehicles and I don't the think The techno
1: that, crane that's like on top of the vehicle
0: yeah yeah this movie would not be the same movie without that thing and I think that's a fairly recent development or at least they've been it's been improved upon to the point where when they shot this film in 2013 or whenever it was, I think it was 2013, uh, the technology was finally there where they could really frame up stuff really accurately. Like that one shot where it introduces uh, Max on the front of Nux's vehicle with the, the thing over his face, then the camera moves to the side and we get a nice profile of Nux and then up to his uh, Lancer, I think, his partner, the guy that was outside of his vehicle, you know, running around, crawling over it. And then it pulls back and then we get that shot of the, uh, what's it called? The Doof Rig? The Doof. Yeah, the Doof Doof Warrior. Oh, my God. That is that is one of the most iconic shots in cinema history. Just instant classic. Him playing that guitar with all those amps and the flamethrower. And again, awesome. Just, I, yeah. <laughs> you know Bad and by the way assery. and when i for the audience when i texted will about you know getting him to come on and talk about one of his favorite movies he just sent me a gif or a gif or however you pronounce it of that moment when when the flames shoot out of the guy's guitar it's like yep i'm in such a, yeah that that is easily one of the most iconic shots in in modern cinema history if not the most iconic shot it's ridiculous it it, it encompasses the movie perfectly it's gorgeous it's fucking ridiculous and it's just so over the top awesome that you can't help but be curious.
1: Well to, to, uh, to your point around it only really being able to be made during that time and that it being helped by the technology, you're right that in terms of the, sort of the, the mobility of the camera that they were able to do with, uh, with, with the vehicles uh, is one, but also you know them shooting it digitally. Uh, They used, you know, uh, Alexa cameras and also like this whole arsenal of uh, DSLRs like Canon 5Ds that they had in terms of like all these crash cams and being able to put a camera up uh, basically anywhere they wanted to. So, yeah, that combination of being able to shoot digitally. I think they ended up with like four hundred and seventy hours of footage. Uh, from the entirety of that shoot that they had to sort wow. through. So you can imagine, you know, the the distillation process and the job that his wife, you know, had editing this thing. But yeah, the, the doof warrior, I mean, come on. It's like that alone. It's like, even if everything else was barren of no good, crazy uh, ideas. I mean, uh, you know, the doof warrior and the polecats. It's like those two introductions right. uh, <laughs> uh, completely are completely original.
0: Blew my mind when I found out that the Polecats, there was no digital enhancement with that whatsoever. Every bit of that's real. To, to get people, uh, I think they they spoke to, I think you mentioned Cirque du Soleil earlier. I believe they they got with somebody that, that had worked on Cirque du Soleil, or at least that was the initial, maybe that was just the germ of the, the idea. My George understanding is, is
1: they actually had Cirque du Soleil performers and like Olympic athletes who were sure. uh, a part of the stunt team uh, in, you know, in order to pull all that stuff off. You know, that took a lot of working out, too. They had to, like, really sit down
0: and think about how they could do this practically. George Miller just immediately thought when he came up with that idea, like, uh, this is probably going to have to be some kind of a digital element that we're going to put into the movie. No, they, they figured it out. They, they actually found poles that had just enough give, not too much. Not too little, but just enough give, just ways to counterbalance it with the counterweight at the bottom of it, which, of course, engine blocks. This is Mad Max. Why not? Yeah, yeah it, every it, bit of that works. And it's practical. Uh, it, it totally makes sense in the world, in the environment that we're we're watching. The production value on this thing, you can just look at a vehicle or just the way one of these members of a clan is dressed and you know exactly what clan he's he's a part of. There's the guys that have the spikes all over their vehicles. There's obviously the war boys who are sort of religious zealots like Nux, who, by the way, we have barely even mentioned Nux. And he, he's certainly one of my favorite characters in the movie. Him and Furiosa are just fantastic in this. But anyway, so, yeah, I think what I was getting at was there's a I hate to say it's a new trend, but it sort of is where we're finally having filmmakers push back against just going to the green screen and just doing it in post and and having an army of special effects people deal with this stuff. And we're actually using real world practical effects everywhere that we possibly can. It gives the movie uh, a weight to it. It keeps it from feeling cartoonish, even though there's all sorts of nonsense going on. There's like the mechanical arm that comes out of the one rig that's got the saws on it that starts sawing away at at Furiosa's war rig cap.
1: That's cool. and It's 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 all terrifying.
0: But it was real. That was a real thing that they built. It it was not done in, in CG. And I, I can't stress enough how, how impressive that is. And and you know, if you think that it doesn't really matter, go take a look at the Star Wars prequels and then take a look at the Star Wars sequel. And I'm not talking about the stories. I'm not I'm just talking about just from a technical level. Look at what works, look at what is obviously shot in a big green room versus being on an actual set with actual people who are interacting with actual objects it's worlds apart you you can't really at least at this point in history replace the one with the other and not have it be noticeable it's it's obvious and this movie went the extra mile to make sure that everything that happened in it that could be cartoonish uh, was not it felt real it felt uh, like there was weight to it there was there was consequence to the violence It wasn't just Looney Tunes nonsense all over the place. Again, it's not what this movie is so much as it's what this movie is and versus what it could be. It could have been.
1: It's funny that you say Looney Tunes, though, because it is absolutely, uh, you know, a wily coyote uh, roadrunner cartoon on the one hand. It's in the desert yeah, to your, too.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But to but to your point that uh, that the, the the physicality and the practicality of the way that they executed it is uh, is what really sets it apart, and I think that's what uh, you know kind of reminded everybody of what's actually possible in real world filmmaking, because yeah, it, it, green screen is going to continue to just be ubiquitous and now they've got these like LED domes, effectively on set that uh, uh, enable you to basically, you know, back project, you know, an entire 360-degree, you know, mm-hmm. view of what a set or environment is, and you're going to see more and more of that. But sh- and while they're doing it for cost reasons and all that sort of stuff, it's like when you do something for real and there's not this sort of digital veil to it all. It connects much more viscerally with us, um, as, as humans, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, to get to, to get to that archetypal hero journey stuff, and to just kind of take it right to the, to the heart of, yeah, explosion and blood. Yeah. Violence and life. I, again, it's got all of that stuff, all of the good ingredients. Um, and it's one of the film that, you know, as an action movie, it's like, I know that that's not a lot of people's bags, you know, I mean, you know, but in terms of like this just being an example of next level filmmaking, it demands viewing and appreciation uh, as an artifact for itself. You know, it's like, it's not just your normal action film. It's not, you know, just a cartoon. There's real shit going on and there's real blood, sweat and tears that went into it again with, you know, some very mature filmmakers that just demands every level of respect. You know, so even if you're not into action film, you know, uh, this, this needs to be, it, it demands to be seen, uh, just as, yeah, uh, a, a beautiful document on the one hand, um, but also just, um, a perfect execution of film and cinema language going all the way back to the beginning in terms of silent film. And, uh, you know, even, you know, the, the black and white sort of thing, which, Uh, I I think it was really smart of them to... I think the black and chrome version of this movie is actually worth a watch for anybody who uh, likes the movie but uh, hasn't actually encountered that on the Blu-ray. It sort of, again, brings it all down to just uh, its basic form. Black and white visuals, it's the Western on wheels, the starkness of its storytelling and imagery. So yeah, Mad Max, Fury Road is the best action film of all time. I'm saying it here.
0: Yeah, I I, I felt like a a chump when I finally watched it. I think it had been available on Blu-ray or home video, whatever, for maybe nine months to a year when I finally got around to watching it, and I could not believe that I slept on such... it's, It's a masterpiece. So yeah, this movie is easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years, I'd say, as far as just pure technical... And, and, and visceral
1: achievement. Yeah, it, it, it's and the reason why I, I wanted to talk about this movie today, just because. All right, in what has been uh, one hellacious year with a lot of uh, awfulness to it, to uh, to actually revisit this movie uh, gives me a bit of joy. Uh, you know, ironically, in all of the sort of destruction uh, uh, that it that it depicts and sort of awful wasteland stuff, the sheer joy of of mastery, witnessing such filmmaking craft, uh, just, I don't know, it just gets me so excited. And, uh, and I, I, I look and I hope that others uh, who encounter this movie kind of get the same type of excitement and joy out of it in its total visceral way. You'll love it the first time you watch it, and the second time you watch it, you're going to get more out of it. There's
0: stuff that we haven't even touched on, but uh, there's, there's just so much to appreciate about this movie. The world building is so rich and immersive that the, the second time you watch it, you'll start noticing little things that you may have missed. Things that add to the culture of each little clan. And of course, the subtext that we touched on earlier with uh, gender dynamics. The idea of autonomy, the different industries—be they arms or produce or fuel—all that stuff, you, you'll get a lot of out of it. That's the second time you watch it, but you got to watch it that first time. Wonderful, yeah. Movie. Just highest for recommendation,
1: the roller, yeah. Go for the roller coaster ride.
0: And again, you don't have to watch the other movies. Just know, post-apocalypse, go. That's it.
1: Well, on that, uh, I'm going to go as well. Thank you very much for having me.
0: And uh, thanks for coming, Will. I appreciate it, man.
1: Thank you, brother. Uh, Till next time.
0: Take care. That's it for this episode, and that's it for this season of Filmography Club. I've thoroughly enjoyed working on this season. We've explored the work of Jeremy Saulnier, one of my favorite new filmmakers. I encourage you to check out his stuff. Last time I checked, it was still streaming on Netflix, uh, especially Blue Ruin and Green Room. They're insanely good. I got to talk about some of my favorite movies as well. I'm thinking about Raising Arizona, uh, one of the funniest movies ever made, in my opinion. I got to rediscover Jaws for the first time as an adult, which was a real treat. I'm a Spielberg fan, no apologies. I got to explore the world of the Universal Monster movies in general and really delve into Bride of Frankenstein in particular, which is another masterpiece. And I got turned on to a filmmaker I'd been meaning to check out for many years. I'm talking about Akira Kurosawa and his stunningly beautiful work, Ikiru. truly one of the most moving films I've ever seen. It's been awfully fun. I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to starting on season three. Please remember to give us a rating on whatever platform you're using, maybe a review too, anything helps. I'd like to thank my guest today, Will Fox. I'd also like to thank Michael Leeds and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced here in Nashville, Tennessee, by the always hardworking folks at We Own This Town. I'm Jason Cavanus. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.